Well, good morning. It is great to see you. If you're a long-time comer to Christ Central or a first-time guest this morning, we're glad you're here. I hope you feel welcomed uh, and glad you decided to be with us on this Sunday morning. We are in our Old Testament book of Exodus this fall, uh, looking at the story of Israel's journey of redemption from slavery to salvation. Uh, And what we have uh, in our passage this morning is a contest of the gods. It's a battle between the God of Israel and the gods of Egypt. Moses has listened to God's call uh, here in Exodus to go to Pharaoh, to tell Pharaoh to let Israel go, but Pharaoh won't listen. So God begins to send plagues upon Egypt, and uh, we see that beginning in Exodus chapter 7. He sends plague after plague, nine plagues, all showcasing his power over creation, which should lead Pharaoh to repent. But Pharaoh's heart gets harder and harder, uh, and Pharaoh and Egypt will not repent because they are committed to their gods. They're committed uh, to their worship. They won't bow and surrender to the God of Israel. And so God sends the tenth and deadliest plague, which is Exodus chapter 12, known as the Passover. And so I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able, and I'm going to read God's word this morning. This is God's word, verses 1 through 13 of Exodus chapter 12. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of, its rem- none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord." The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Let's pray. God, I ask that you would speak to us this morning. Lord, your your words are a matter of life and death. And so I pray that you, by your Spirit, would speak to our spirits, our hearts would uh, be receptive, our minds enlightened, uh, our lives changed because uh, of you speaking to us this morning. Remove me so that Christ is lifted up in this place. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. Someone shared at the 9 a.m. service to pray, continue praying for Las Vegas. They had a friend. She was from Las Vegas, had a friend who was shot 
last week uh, at the um, Jason Aldean concert, and so we prayed at the 9 a.m. for the, those who are still recovering, the city of Las Vegas. Uh, it's still very fresh in our country, uh, 58 killed. I don't know if any of you watched the videos, uh, different videos filmed of the shooting. Uh, I clicked on one of the videos, and I couldn't really watch it. It, it, I had to turn it off. It was, it was too much for me to watch. And I'm amazed at the graphic videos that are posted on common outlets like CNN. We live in an extremely violent and graphic culture, don't we? Not only are these live videos now posted for all to see, but our movies and video games that are created are the most violent and graphic that they've ever been. And even though this is our current cultural climate, if we're honest we all can be deeply disturbed by brutal death. It's disturbing to watch gunfire held down on a crowd of people. It's disturbing to watch Philando Castile get shot and his wife and child be in the car and watch him die. It's disturbing to watch Christians get beheaded by ISIS. Upon seeing, reading, or hearing about this type of death, deep down inside we can be undone because brutal death is disturbing. We cannot gloss over the story that I just read because maybe it's familiar to some of us. I mean, God comes down and he kills every firstborn Egyptian male. This is graphic and it's bloody and it's in our Bible. And even more than that, this event, the Passover event, became a memorial, a defining ritual in the Jewish culture and Jewish life. This is a tough story. It's troubling and disturbing. How do we make sense of this violent God in Exodus chapter 12? What's the meaning of all of this? I mean, I definitely could have skipped this passage. Uh, There are many other things in Exodus that I could have preached on that would be less disturbing. But I believe that we must address the hard passages of the Bible. Uh, That we, Christ Central as a church, allow for questions, hard, unsettling questions, and then we want to look at the Scriptures and seek to see how the Scriptures answer them. I'm not saying they'll always be satisfactory to what we're looking for, but I want us to be faithful to the, to the whole of Scripture. And this passage, Exodus chapter 12, it's too central to the whole Bible for us not to address it. Throughout the Old and New Testament, there's a reference to the Passover. So we're going to look this morning at Exodus 12, and I'm going to point out three things. The plague, the lamb, and the blood. The plague, the lamb, and the blood. Let's look first at the plague. I want to remind you how Exodus started, Exodus chapter 1. It started by saying that that Pharaoh was afraid of Israel. Israel was growing in number, and so Pharaoh, in his fear, enslaves Israel. And then he orders every male infant of Israel to be tossed into the Nile River. Pharaoh ordered this, but you have to know that it took a nation to carry it out. Egypt as a nation is guilty of genocide. So God has sent nine plagues on Egypt to compel Pharaoh to let Israel go. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. He won't listen to God. So God sends the tenth and deadliest plague. Kill the firstborn of every Egyptian family. Firstborn son. Now, we have to understand this. Ancient Near Eastern people didn't have aspirations for individual prosperity. Not not like our culture at all. (laughs) We're, we're, We're all about individual prosperity. It was all about familial prosperity. 
You wanted your family to succeed more than you did. If one member of the family failed in some way, then the whole family bore that shame. The firstborn of the family received the entire inheritance, the whole estate, because the firstborn represented the family, and everybody understood this. So this plague is God's judgment on the family, on the nation of Egypt. Egypt wouldn't listen to God. Egypt continued to worship their gods. Pharaoh and Egypt inflicted genocide and harsh slavery on on Israel. They were unwilling to listen, unwilling to repent. So God sends what Egypt deserves, death. God's execution of judgment on the family and on this nation comes in the death of the firstborn. Now there's something else we need to realize that's different about this plague than the other nine plagues. This is the only plague in which God doesn't make a distinction between Egypt and, and Israel. All the other plagues, the other nine, only Egypt experiences the plagues. But this tenth plague is the death of every firstborn in the land, Egyptian and Israelite, on all who do not kill the lamb and put the blood on their doorpost. Israel also would not listen to God's word through Moses and Aaron. Israel, living in Egypt, began to worship the gods of Egypt. We see this in Joshua 24, 14. Joshua speaking to Israel says, Put away the gods of your fathers that they served in Egypt. Israel was also guilty of disobedience and of idolatry, therefore deserving of judgment, executed in death, death of the firstborn. Now, I know some of you might be thinking, man, this is primitive and weird. Surely this isn't God. Surely the Bible doesn't expect us to believe that sin is so heinous to God that every firstborn son is liable for it. And the answer is, yes, it does. And one of modern man's major issues with passages like this is that we presume our own innocence, which leads us to believe we're entitled that we're entitled to our personal happiness, we're entitled to a good life, we presume innocence. Therefore, if we do believe in God, it leads us to believe that God owes us. And to talk about a God who executes judgment and death is offensive because we think so highly of ourselves. We believe the God of our imagination would never do such a thing because we're good. We are innocent. Listen, if, if you never understand yourself uh, in this way if you never understand the bible in this way you'll never understand the fullness of the gospel we are not entitled to personal happiness romans three twenty three says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of god every single person is a sinner and sin is more than the commission of some awful crime Sin is loving anything more than we love God. That's sin, simply put. Loving anything more than loving God. And let me be honest with you. I'm guilty of that this morning. I've had to pray this morning, and I pray every Sunday morning, that God would lead me to repent of wanting to preach a good sermon so that people will like me more than preaching a good sermon for God's glory. I can love having people like me more than I love God. And that's sin. And every single day, every single one of us is is guilty of loving things more than we love God. And here's a hard truth. God does not owe us anything but justice. 
Because by God's perfect, holy standard, we're all guilty of disobedience and idolatry. Now, I know some of you in our church are compelled by justice. You're compelled to fight to make what is wrong right. There is a great God-given desire in your heart to seek justice for the oppressed and the marginalized. In fact, I believe every single person has a heart for justice. It's God-given, made in His image. This cry for justice that rises up inside of us when we see something and we just want to shout, that's wrong. That's a cry of justice. But at the same time, we don't like to think of God's justice being poured out on us because we think we're innocent, but we're not. We sin and fall short of the glory of God. And for God to make what is wrong right in us and in the world, he must enact justice. He must judge, and in his judgment is executed in death. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. Here's another heavy truth. All God owes us is death. All God owes us. In fact, it's, it's unfair that we woke up this morning. It's unfair that we ate breakfast this morning. It's unfair that we take our next breath, for we all deserve death. If you were to stand before God and he were to ask you, what have you done that I should let you into heaven? What would you say? The only, pro- the only proper response is, haven't done anything to deserve heaven. In fact, here's my list of accusations and sins that are all against me, and they're too many to count, because before the judgment of God, we're all guilty. This is why God provides what God requires. We see this in our next two points, the lamb and the blood. Look at the lamb. God makes provision for the Israelites. He says, choose a lamb, care for the lamb, and then kill the lamb. Choose a lamb that, that's a yearling, a one-year-old baby. It shall be perfect without blemish. And they were to take this lamb on the 10th day, kill it on the 14th day, which meant they cared for this lamb for four days. Four days this little lamb would be in their home. Have you seen a baby lamb? They're cute, all right? They're cute and guarantee you that, that the children of the family would become attached to the lamb. Perhaps they would even name the lamb. We're about to get a, a dog soon in our home, hopefully, and our boys are already calling the dog by name. They're so excited about this dog, they've never even seen or met the dog. So I guarantee you the children would become attached to this lamb. But then on the 14th day, they would kill the lamb at twilight. Don't miss how graphic this is. The family would gather together, having fallen in love with this little lamb, But they knew if twilight came and they hadn't killed the lamb, then their firstborn son would be killed. So the dad takes the knife. And the children are probably saying, no, dad, no, dad, please don't. Don't kill the lamb. And the dad says, it's either you, son, or the lamb. It's either you or the lamb. And then the dad takes the knife and he cuts the neck of the lamb. And the lamb bleats and screams so loud that everybody can hear it and blood splatters everywhere. If you know some of the Old Testament history, then you know God's always required a lamb. Genesis chapter 4, Cain and Abel. Abel brought the firstborn of his flock, his best lamb, for a sacrificial offering to God. 
Genesis chapter 22, Abraham going to sacrifice his son Isaac. Abraham says God will provide a lamb for a burnt offering. Leviticus 16, every year on the Day of Atonement, God would provide a lamb. The high priest would bring this lamb into God's presence and sacrifice it as a sin offering. God has always provided what God requires, a substitute sacrifice to die for his people. God provides a substitute so that God's requirement of justice would still be poured out not on Israel but on the lamb. Genesis chapter 4, God provides a lamb for one person, Abel. Our text this morning, God provides a lamb for the family. Leviticus 16, God provides a lamb for the nation. But in Jesus Christ, God provides a lamb for the sins of the whole world. On August 16, 1987, there was a Northwest airline flight carrying 154 people. They were bound to pass over Tempe, Arizona. And as the plane was taking off, it began to stall. And it crashed into a a light pole at the end of the runway. And part of the wing was severed and the jet fuels uh, stored in the wings ignited. The plane would eventually crash into nearby traffic on a road just outside of the airport. The wreckage was horrible. And it appeared that all 154 people in the flight were dead. But as rescuers began to comb through the wreckage, they found an injured but living four-year-old little girl. Her name was Cecilia Sichan. And at first they assumed surely she was from one of the cars that were hit, but they realized that her name was on the passenger manifest. And they were able to piece together what enabled Cecilia to survive. Her mom had apparently unfastened her own seatbelt, climbed over the seat of her daughter, wrapping her body around her child in love and protection. She absorbed the impact of the crash in her own body, saving her daughter from death. Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, willingly went to the cross, wrapped himself around his people, absorbed the impact of God's justice that our sin deserved. In his death, we are spared. It's either Jesus or us who receive God's justice for sin. And thank God that God provides the Lamb. Let's look lastly at the blood. Because it's not just the Lamb, it's also the blood that saves Israel. They were to take the blood of the lamb, put it on the doorpost of their house, on the lentils of their house. This blood would turn away God's judgment. When Steven Spielberg was making the movie Prince of Egypt, to depict the Passover, he was just going to put a a mark on the doorpost. But religious scholars convinced him that you have to use blood. The blood is important because it wasn't in their ethnicity that God passed over them. Their ethnicity did not save them from death. Remember, judgment was coming on Egypt and Israel. God would only pass over those whom the blood was spread on their doors. The blood was an atonement for their sin. Not a taking away of guilt, but it was a taking away of life. It was the life of the lamb for the life of the Israelites. God's forgiveness cost. It cost blood. Now, I know you may be thinking, this, is, this still seems strange. Some of you may be thinking that. It, it is a different time. It's a different culture. But every single one of us knows that forgiveness is costly, don't we? If someone wrongs you in some way, either you pay and absorb the cost or you make them pay. 
That's the way forgiveness works. Forgiveness is costly. And we sin against God. We love other things more than we love God. Love our reputation. We love our success at work. We love our families. We love our comfort more than we love God. And it leads us to often treat God's commands as if there's some helpful suggestions to make our life just a little bit better. God's little instruction book for, for us to have the best life now. This is an insult to God. And on top of that, we presume innocence. And we act like when we trample on God's commands, it's nothing. This is heinous. It is so heinous that it requires the shedding of blood. I'm sure you see where the story points and why Passover was memorialized annually for the Jews and why we as Christians still honor it as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. One rabbi who's a religious scholar calls the Passover a master story. I love that. She, she says it's a master story, a story by which Scripture uses to retell the whole gospel story, the whole story of Scripture. It's a master story. And this is our story. Our sin is so great that God's execution of judgment is death. We're guilty. All God owes us is death, but what God requires, God provides. Not just a one-year-old lamb that has been taken care of for four days by a family, but God provides His only Son, the Lamb who was eternally loved by the Father. And the Father knew it was either His Son or us, so the Father would allow not a knife but nails to be driven into His hands and His feet. And Jesus would scream out from the cross, and His blood would be spilled. The cross is a gory and graphic and bloody event. But it's through the cross by which we are saved. John chapter 1, verse 29. John the Baptist sees Jesus coming for the first time. Do you remember what, what John the Baptist proclaims? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And Jesus was crucified during Passover. It was actually during this Jewish feast of Passover. Imagine with me that every Jewish family celebrating Passover, caring for their lambs for four days in their home, cutting the neck of the lamb, hundreds of thousands of lambs crying out, blood being spilled. The high priest is in the temple taking a lamb, killing it for the sake of a nation, while Jesus is hanging on a cross outside of Jerusalem, crying out to his father, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of the whole world. Jesus is called in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Passover lamb. God has provided Jesus. And the question is, do we live under the blood? Hebrew 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Do you have faith in the lamb and in the blood? Do you trust Jesus? Passover of Exodus chapter 12, it required active faith. I mean, the, the family would gather together, father, mother, children, and, and the father would kill the lamb, and then the mother and the children would look on as the father would spread the blood on the doorpost and the lentils, and they acted out their faith, believing God would save them through the blood. 
So the spreading of the blood was a public profession of their trust and faith in God. I recently read a story about a Major League Baseball player, uh, Damian Easley. And Easley was riding on a plane when he overheard some of his teammates on the Angels talking about God. And they were sitting several rows behind him, and he heard one of them ask this question, if this plane were to crash right now, would you go to heaven? Maybe you've heard that posed before. But this made Easley uncomfortable because he, he wasn't sure. So he walked back and he sat behind his teammates hoping to get some answers. And by the time the plane landed, Easley had come to recognize, like Israel and Egypt, that he was under the sentence of death for his sins. He then surrendered his life and he placed his faith in Jesus to save him. Our faith must be We must place our trust and faith in Christ, surrendering our lives to God. Those of you who have been here know I I don't ask this question a lot, but in light of this passage, I I think I've got to ask it. If you were to die today, would you go to heaven? And why do you think you would go to heaven? Our only hope is to trust and rest in the mercy and grace of Christ to us, the Lamb who shed His blood to save us. Let's pray. God, I ask that You would help us to behold the Lamb, to see Your provision, to know not just our guilt, but to know that our guilt can be removed, our condemnation removed as we trust in Jesus. Lord, give us that gift of faith I pray. Strengthen us even now. In Jesus' name, amen.